The scripture reading today comes from the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. The scripture reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the life, uh, on the Spirit, is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Please turn in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Picking up where we left off a few weeks ago. 1 Peter, chapter 3. Verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 
13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now pray his blessing on its preaching. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is your holy word, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we, your people, have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit as well. We ask, O Lord, that you would now illumine this text for us, illumine our hearts and minds, shed the light of your Spirit upon us as we examine this text. We pray these things for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's look first, naturally enough, at the beginning of this portion of God's Word. Let's look, let's look together at verse 13 of this text. The apostle here is asking a rhetorical question meant to illustrate a point. The general point that Peter is making is that, as a rule, people ordinarily who will not do evil, uh, people who are not going to do evil are going to be doing good, and that it delights the Lord to reward with good things those who do good, that is, those who obey his commandments. Now, we all know this to be true, even if only on an intuitive level. Much of the theology that's fed to the American people today trumpets this principle as, as supreme. But now let's look at verse 14. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. First we have to take note that the words, you will be blessed in the ESV, is not a precise rendering of the Greek. A better translation is, you are blessed. Let's look together at chapter 4 and verse 14 of this letter. Chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Note how in 4.14 it is rendered, you are blessed, rather than you will be blessed. Both chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 4, verse 14, have the same word in Greek, makarioi, from which we get the word blessed. But this word has neither a future tense or a present tense because it's not a verb. 
It's an adjective. The ESV translators give the blessing in 314 this future sense, I think, because they appreciate the forward-looking orientation of much of this passage in 1 Peter. That is, the translators observe that parts of this passage are looking forward to the final judgment, when God will set things right, when believers in Jesus Christ and believers of Jesus Christ will receive the reward that he earned for them. And when those who do not receive Jesus as Lord and Savior will get God's justice for their sins. So this is all to say that the blessings Peter promises are largely future blessings, eschatological blessings. But we know this from the context, not from the word itself. We'll discuss this more in a bit, but for now, let's continue to focus on these initial verses. Now, in both of these places in Peter's letter, 3.14 and 4.14, the apostle is talking about suffering at the hands of scoffers because of belief in Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking in both places much the same way he heard the Lord himself speak when he gave his sermon on, on the mount. In Matthew 5, in verse 10 especially, One of the Beatitudes that Jesus spoke that day was, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There again is that adjective, makarioi, blessed. So here at 1 Peter 3.14, we should perhaps translate the apostle as saying, Blessed are you if you suffer for righteousness' sake. That's an idea that's utterly at variance with most of the preaching going on in our day. How can both Peter and our Lord be saying that we are blessed if we are persecuted as followers of Jesus? We are blessed if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake because this serves to certify and to validate our claim to Christ. We are blessed if we suffer for his name because it reveals that we are united to him. And so partake of his sufferings. For he too suffered, did he not, for righteousness' sake. Recall from our reading in Romans 8 that believers in Jesus are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this shows that something trumps the general principle that Peter mentioned at the opening of this text in verse 13. There Peter suggests that those who do good will get good from God, and they will not be abused by men. What is greater than that general principle, however, is this great enterprise. God has undertaken to unite sinners to Christ to make them holy to cause them to become fellow heirs with his own beloved son. This great, this even unthinkable enterprise takes precedence over the general principle of verse 13. And this enterprise includes suffering. It includes being persecuted for righteousness sake. But it also includes blessings greater than just this worldly blessings like a life free from worry, trouble, or persecution. 
When Peter and the other apostles had beaten the Jewish, been beaten by the Jewish authorities for preaching Christ, the book of Acts records in chapter 5, verse 41, that when they left, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy, worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. They did not rejoice at their humiliation and their pain because they were masochists. The apostles rejoiced at their dishonor and their stripes because by suffering for Christ, they were in a way suffering with Christ. And so would one day, as Paul said, share in his glory and in his inheritance. This is why Peter says that you are blessed if you too have a share in suffering for righteousness' sake. I'll read a quote to you from Matthew Henry on this point. He wrote, To suffer for righteousness' sake is the honor and happiness of a Christian. To suffer for the cause of truth, a good conscience, or any part of a Christian's duty is a great honor. And the delight of it is greater than the torment, the honor more than the disgrace, and the gain much greater than the loss. Let's move on in our text now. Let's look at the second part of 14 to the second part of 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In these verses, Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. But Peter modifies the language a little bit of Isaiah 8 as he quotes it. And in doing so, he does what for a Jew would be a very stunning assertion. But before we discuss Peter's stunning assertion, we must deal with something else first. For now observe how the fear of man in 14b, the second part of 14b, or 14, seems to be contrasted with honoring Christ as holy in 15a, or the first part of 15. Have no fear of them or be troubled, but... Honor the, honor the Christ. Christ the Lord as holy. In the Greek, it is sanctify the Lord, the Christ. In Greek, it's sanctify the Lord, the Christ. These same two alternatives are put here to Peter's audience that were often put to ancient Israel of Isaiah's day. You either fear men, or you sanctify the Lord. Which, of course, does not mean to make the Lord holy, but regard Him as holy, to honor and revere Him as God. So you could say that to the degree that you fear men, you fail to sanctify Christ. And to the degree that you sanctify Christ, that you succeed in doing that, you will be fearless before men. But why are these two seemingly unrelated ideas opposed to one another? Peter is telling us that if we fail to bear witness to Christ when unbelievers mock, revile, curse, or even persecute us, 
We are failing to sanctify Christ. We are failing to confess Him before men as the living God, as the only Savior and Lord. The fear of what men may think or say or do against us too often prompts us to keep silent. We do not treat the Lord Jesus Christ as risen and ascended and glorified as right then watching over our interactions with unbelievers from his throne and as being in charge of the whole situation. When we shrink back in fear from bearing him witness, we treat him as though he were beyond earshot, as if the Holy One of Israel is not, in fact, looking on. We treat him as unreal, as not being omnipresent by his Spirit, as not being omniscient, knowing our every word and our every muted thought, when the fear of men stifles and strangles our testimony to his goodness and his grace, his holiness, and his salvation. We treat him as less than omnipotent and sovereign if we give in to our fears in encounters with men. Trusting in God and revering his majesty and power will cast off all fear of man. And in this way, we will sanctify the Lord in our hearts. In the words of one commentator, we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts when we with sincerity and fervency adore him, when our thoughts of him are filled with awe and reverend, when we rely upon his power, trust to his faithfulness, submit to his wisdom, imitate his holiness, and give him the glory due to his most illustrious perfections. When we fear men, we show how little we fear and reverence the Lord. But in Leviticus 10, verse 3, God reveals that sanctifying him is a precondition to drawing near to him. I will be sanctified by all who would draw near to me. To fear men, rather than to open up our mouths and bear witness to our Savior and Lord, is to fail to regard Jesus Christ as holy. It is to fail to regard Jesus Christ as omnipotent God. Now remember earlier, just a few moments ago, I, that I hinted at a change, in fact an addition, that Peter makes to the text of Isaiah 8 in his quotation. Look again at verse 15, the beginning of verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In the Greek original of this verse, it reads, as I said, Sanctify the Lord the Christ. Sanctify the Lord the Christ. Back in Isaiah 8, the prophet uses the sacred divine name of Yahweh, rather than merely Lord, as here. This four-lettered name in Hebrew, Yahweh, is the name of God Almighty used in the Old Testament as the proper name of the Lord Most High. It is, in fact, the sacred name that God uses for himself at the episode of the burning bush. There in Isaiah, we see that Yahweh Sabaoth, 
the Lord of hosts is the one that the Israelites were to sanctify. And the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates Yahweh there, as it often did, as Kyrian, that is, the Lord. Now returning to 1 Peter 3 in this quotation of the Apostle, here Peter says, in quoting Isaiah, that we are to sanctify the Lord, the Christ. We are to sanctify Kyrian ton Christo. The Apostle affirms in this place that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the Almighty. And he does this without hesitation. He does it without explanation. He just baldly asserts that this text, familiar to other Jews, Isaiah 8.13, applies to the Messiah. It applies to the Christ. And then he just moves on. This is the one whom Peter and the other apostles preached. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And as we know from other passages, so too are the other persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Remember this passage, beloved, should you encounter a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses, so-called, deny the Trinity. But the New Testament affirms repeatedly that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Almighty. Jesus is Yahweh. He is Jehovah God. Now before we move on, we must take heed here that we are to sanctify the Lord, the Christ, in our hearts, in the innermost, innermost core of our persons, in the very seat of our affections. It is there in the heart that he must be regarded as holy. It is there that he must be acknowledged as king. Not merely in our ears, not merely with our lips, not even merely in our thoughts. The devil has it in his thoughts that Jesus Christ is holy and that he is the king of kings. But he does not revere Jesus Christ in his heart or submit to him. Christ must reign supreme in your innermost temple. Your heart must be his throne. From there to go on to govern the rest of of your, your, your being, all of your thoughts, words, and actions. Let's move on now in the text. Honoring the Christ, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In this place, we can see the relationship between sanctifying the Lord Jesus Christ and not clamming up out of fear of men. We sanctify him by always being ready to make a defense for our trusting in him, a defense of our believing in him. We aren't only to be prepared to do this should the government put us on trial for being Christians as happened often since Christ appeared and then ascended. And it happens in other parts of the world today, and it does not take much imagination to see how quickly it could happen here. No, we are to be prepared to give an answer for our hope that is our faith in Christ Jesus, who is our hope. 
to each one who asks. That's what the Greek means, makes plain. That includes ordinary social settings, not just government-led persecution. But the text here not only compels us to be well-versed and prepared to defend our trust in Christ, it also gives us guidelines as to the manner in which we are to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We are called upon to do it in a certain way. We are called upon to do it with gentleness and with respect. That's difficult to do, but we must do it. Our fear of being ridiculed by men as we engage in evangelism or apologetics, or even as we have a, uh, share a meal or have a beer with an unbelieving neighbor, can drive us to treat their remarks or their arguments, their worldview, arrogantly. Now, mockery may be a commonly used instrument in the toolbox of the scoffer, but the Christian must never respond in kind. The disciple of Christ must never betray Christ as he defends Christ. The Christian must remember that the things that the apostle tells us in today's text. This text tells us many things to help us carry ourselves appropriately in such encounters. It tells us to regard Christ as holy and not to fear men. Christ's will is at work in such encounters. And you must trust him to dispose of the affair according to his will. This resting in his sovereignty over all things will prevent our feeling we have to stoop to ridicule or to speak arrogantly with our neighbor. Much of the frustration of such encounters, which stems from fear, in turn comes from the mistaken belief that the outcome depends on you and on your wits. Also, this text tells us that we must always be prepared. Constant readiness for action by a persistent and diligent study of the scriptures and our subordinate standards will make us more confident that is less fearful in such encounters. If you're ready, if you're always prepared, you're less afraid of such encounters, and so more in control of yourself. And then you can comport yourself with calm. Also, chiefly, we, we Presbyterians must not forget what we believe about salvation, about embracing the gospel. Doing so, we will remember the real reason for the hope that is within us, even when encountered by scoffers. The reason we have our hope in Christ at all is entirely due to his grace and not our greater intelligence, wisdom, or goodness in embracing the gospel for ourselves. There but for the grace of God go I, you must remind yourself, when someone challenges your hope in Christ. This truth, the reason that this hope is currently within you and not within them, will help you refrain from pride and arrogance when encountering those who scoff at our holy religion. No pride, observed one commentator, is more offensive 
than the pride of being trophies of grace. No pride is more offensive than the pride of being trophies of God's grace. So those who appreciate the utter graciousness of their salvation will also carry themselves humbly before scoffers. Consider, remember, the encounter between the Apostle Paul and Festus at Acts chapter 26, verse 24. The Roman official raised his voice, the text tells us, and said to the Apostle Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. Just preaching, as Paul was doing there, about the resurrection and the sufferings of Christ can cause this kind of reaction, can cause offense to some. Consider how this Roman official, this this high Roman official, suddenly raised his voice, and then he calls Paul crazy. So the gospel itself offends, even when when it's preached by an apostle. But we, personally, must never offend. How did Paul respond to that raised voice and to that man's insults? Peter, uh, Paul responded politely. He responded politely to someone yelling at him and calling him insane. He responded to him in this way with respectful address. He still refers to the man as most excellent Festus. We must also, as Paul models and as Peter commands, make our defense with gentleness and with respect. Let's move on in our passage now, the last part of 15 to 17. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter writes, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Having a good conscience. The verse that starts with the word having starts with a participle. It's a participle of result. So the idea here is that if you go about fearlessly making your defense, yet with humility and respect, the result will be that you will enjoy a clear conscience afterward, even if you are reviled, slandered, or persecuted. A clear conscience is something the Apostle Paul said he always strived to maintain. Peter tells us that we must do likewise. Then after this statement, Peter writes, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now Peter is really saying two things here when he says that the revilers will be put to shame. First, from the immediate context, it's clear he means that if you're going to suffer at the hands of such people, it's better to be personally innocent in the matter. If you're going to be persecuted or reviled, enter into it with a clear conscience. Let it be for doing good, and let it not be for defending our Lord proudly 
and arrogantly. In which case, you kind of deserve at least some of what you get. Read again verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now turn with me in this letter to chapter 2 and verses 19 to 23. Two, chapter 2 and verses 19 to 23. For it is a gracious thing when God, mindf- when, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here we can see what Peter means when he says that unbelievers will be ashamed. Peter is saying that when we encounter them, we must encounter them in meekness, even when persecuted, slandered, or reviled, repaying arrogance with humility, repaying cursing with blessing, as Paul did with that Roman official. And he says that he will smite their conscience But congregation, a smitten conscience, and even a sense of shame will not always result in their repentance, or in belief, or even in civility. Sometimes goodness and light causes those who love the darkness and hate the light to curse and even to kill. This is what happened when our Lord came into this world. This happened to the apostles. This has happened time and again since then. And as I said before, it can happen to you someday. So this leads us to consider the second thing Peter is talking about when he says that the revilers will be ashamed. Going back to chapter 2 for a moment, look at verse 6. 1 Peter 2.6 For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The shame that the wicked will know is opposed in Peter's letter to what happens to those who believe in him. Believers, we are told here, will not be ashamed. Suffering for righteousness' sake conforms us to Christ's image. It unites us to the heir of all things. And it causes us, therefore, to share in his inheritance, according to the scriptures. So that when he returns on that great day of visitation, those who despise both him and his body in this world will be put to shame. Look at 2.12 now from 1 Peter. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The shame that the wicked will understand, as as Peter says in a number of places in this letter, is eschatological as well. When Jesus Christ returns, it will be as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord will be glorified in his saints that day. And those who are in Christ by grace through faith will not be ashamed, but will instead glorify him and be glorified with him. But all those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be ashamed. They will be forced to glorify God for his justice toward them. The gospel, the good news, is therefore not lightly to be rejected. Nor is it to be casually, coolly observed from afar. But the gospel is to be clung to for dear life. For that day, spoken of in the scriptures, is coming. The gospel is the good news of our gracious salvation, no matter what sins we've committed. And this gracious salvation can be found alone in Jesus Christ. He died so that those who trust and believe in him need not die. He bore the wrath of God on the cross so that those who truly repent and believe will not bear the wrath of God forever themselves. Repent and believe then in the Lord Jesus Christ while he still presents this gospel to you. For when he comes back, or should you be ushered into his presence suddenly before then, you will be forever ashamed. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, the human race created in your own image and likeness has rebelled against you and continues to rebel against you. We were exiled from your presence because of our sin. But you have a plan of redemption by which you may be reunited with a people called by your own name. Those who, by grace, Embrace this plan of redemption. We ask, O Lord, that you would please open up hearts that may be closed prior to this day with this message of peace. Help them to open their hearts, O Lord, to behold the wondrous, the beautiful majesty of your grace in Christ. And those of us who already trust in your name, we ask that you would increase our faith Cause us to walk in obedience to the apostolic injunctions we find in this text. Help us to be ever mindful of them. And so to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. In whose name we pray. Amen.